the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finn. We've got a really good show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we will be interviewing Daniel Oshheim. This time as author. Normally we interview him as involved with the Council in Council of Israel in Chicago, but he's written a book called Kreisky, Israel and Jewish Identity, about Austrian Chancellor Bruno Kreisky. Interesting. Very, it's a very interesting book, believe me. When uh, when we get done with this interview, you're going to run out and go, go buy the book. The portion of the week which will be discussed in the second chapter, uh, second half of the, of, the, of the show, will be Mishpatim, which can be found in the book of Exodus, chapter 21 and following. We've got wonderful music. Some of it's like brand new. It's just like hours old. Just hit the, hit the, uh, the waves. And uh, throughout the show, we've got a, a very meaningful story at the end. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. The 2,500-year-old synagogue in Antakya, Turkey, was damaged by the earthquake earlier this last week. Most of the city was destroyed, so it's looked upon as being a major thing that the building is still standing. Twelve of the 24 Jewish residents, along with the Torah scrolls, were evacuated to Istanbul, which was not affected by the quake. The leaders of the Jewish community of Antakya, the 92-year-old lay leader and his wife, did die in the rubble. Israel has been, Israel has been feeling aftershocks of this mammoth quake. Tremors measuring 2.2 were felt in central Israel, and one quake was actually felt as far away as Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. No casualties or damage was reported. 
Turkish police arrested 15 members of ISIS for planning to bomb synagogues, churches, and the Danish embassy in Istanbul. Israel sent medical supplies, rescue equipment, and manpower to Turkey and and Syria to help in the aftermath of the 7.8 earthquake that killed over 20,000 people. So far, Israeli teams have rescued two dozen people from trapped under the rubble. That's rescued, meaning they're still alive. In other news, IDF soldiers near Hebron shot and killed a Palestinian who tried to stab them with a knife. Interesting story here. It makes you wonder. Barcelona mayor announced that the city is no longer twinned with Tel Aviv, citing claims that Israel is guilty of apartheid as well as flagrant and systematic violations of human rights. In response, the mayor of Madrid offered his city as a replacement for Tel Aviv for the twining, twinning agreement. The, I don't know what comes when you twin a city, but anyway, I think Oak Park is twinned with Jaffa or something. The mayor of Spain's capital called his Barcelona counterpart anti-Semitic and offered Tel Aviv's mayor Madrid's commitment to democracy and freedom. And finally, one man was arrested and charged with intimidation and using a fake weapon in a house of worship after firing blanks in the Schneerson Russian Center in San Francisco last Friday night. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital, the same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finnan here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have online Daniel Ashheim, who I usually announce as being involved with the Council General of the State of Israel in Chicago. But this week, we're introducing him as author. Daniel Ashram, because he's written a really wonderful book called Kreisky, Israel and Jewish Identity about the Austrian Chancellor, Bruno Kreisky. How are you today, Daniel? Thank you very much. How are you? Good. Baruch Hashem. Thank God. Thank you for asking. Okay. So I remember Kreisky quite well. I was in high school when he, actually I was, it was before my bar mitzvah when he took over, but he was chancellor for such a long time. It was basically my growing up uh, period of my life, and I never thought he, he was actually Jewish. And I recall things of like um, he was accused of being a Nazi sympathizer, and uh, he even had Nazis on his cabinet when he was chancellor. And he uh, there was a whole suit with him and, and Simon Wiesenthal. This is this is what I remember of Kreisky. What interested you, piqued your interest, that you would actually go and write a whole book? <laughs> about Bruno Kreisky. 
First of all, I'm very happy to hear that you have recollections of the person. One of the reasons why I wrote the book was that I speak and say the name and no one has heard of him in my generation for sure, in the older generation that some will remember, but I came up to it by a complete chance when I did a paper for my master thesis and about terrorism in Europe in the 70s, and there was a terrorist incident that took place in Vienna. And I thought the chancellor was Bruno Kreisky. I read a little bit more about him. Then he happened to be a Jewish chancellor of Austria, in very anti-Semitic Austria in the <laughs> 1970s. And I said to myself, how is that that I've never heard of the person, never knew that there was a Jewish chancellor in post-World War Europe in those years in Austria? And I started investigating it and reading and reading and reading and then interviewing many people in Austria, in Israel, in the United States, opening archives and trying to understand this mystery for me, I spoke to my parents who said, yes, of course we remember. He was the most hated person in Israel and the most loved person in Austria then. Then I said, I have to get well into it even more. And then I started writing my PhD about it and then eventually the book that you read. Very fascinating. Absolutely. I could imagine that Bruno Kreisky was probably one of those people that the Austrians would say, we don't like Jews, but you're, you're a good Jew. We like you. That was kind of, kind of like what I got from it. As we see that he was before and became coming chancellor, he was imprisoned not for being Jewish. He was imprisoned for being a socialist. That was really more his flavor. So, so tell us about what did you find that was really so fascinating about Bruno Kreisky? Correct. So you pointed out, so he's a very, very complex man. So what I try to show in this book is the complexity of the person. It's not a black and white situation. So he wasn't a saint like many tried to portray him in Austria. He was not the devil like many Jews or Israelis wanted to portray him. He was a man of contradictions amongst himself. So on the one hand, he claimed that he was a non-Zionist. On the other hand, many of his actions were pro-Israel and pro the future of Zionism. He gives in to terrorism on the one hand, but then helps Israel fight terrorism on another hand. He works on all the time. He has these different personalities. And on the one hand, he says that he sympathizes with certain Nazis who he said he's a good Nazi as opposed to a bad Nazi. He mentioned his jail cellmate was a Nazi. And then he also sympathized with Kurt Waldheim and other ministers in his cabinet who were Nazis in, his, in their childhood or in their later old days. And on the other hand, 22 of his relatives were murdered in the Holocaust. So it's a very, very challenging to portray this man, who he really was, what he did to con continue Austria's victims doctrine, claiming that they were the first victims of, Nazi of the Nazis, which was fake news, but it was the doctrine of Austria for many years to come. So he was in, that, in those days, and he was advocating for that. So it's a big mystery who this man was. Was he a self-hating Jew? Was he a caring Jew? Was he someone caring about himself? Or was he all of the above? Amazing. Okay. So now you said that as Chancellor, your book focuses on his, the period 1970 to 1983, which when he was Chancellor, and there's, like, there's a whole backstory going all the way back to 1925 when he was just getting into university, and then there's a whole stuff afterwards in his death in 1986. So books could have been written about those, that, those time periods also. So during this time period, so he's living this dichotomy. So tell us, give, me, you, give us some examples of how Bruno Kreisky was pro-Israel, pro-Zionist. 
So one of the examples that I'm always asked about that is when you see this interaction with Golda Meir and Menachem Begin, they hated each other and they called each other, he called Begin a, a petty Jew and Begin called him a self-hating Jew and there was real deep hatred there. On the other hand, in an interview with Yona Kalimvitsky, the closest uh, secretary of Menachem Begin, they say that whenever something happened that Begin needed assistance regarding the Arab state, so when they needed to do prisoner exchange with, with Arab countries or the Palestinian terrorists, then the first person he always called for help was Bruno Kreisky. And Bruno Kreisky immediately, immediately said yes to all of these things. A lot of them were covert actions in at the prisoner exchange in Jibril with Ahmed Jibril, the known prisoner exchange or, or infamous one, infamous one. He was the one mitigating it. And so that's one example. But it happened in various occasions that Kreisky was called by Israeli leaders to mitigate and try and, and, and bring conversations to the table. But I'll give you another example of, of how the things continued. So everyone remembers the incident. If you talk to someone who remembers the Kreisky-Golda interaction, they will remember the glass of water incident. I don't know if it recalls to you something, but he was asked, after the terrorist activity that took place in Marsheg, when a group of terrorists hijacked a train coming from Czechoslovakia to Austria with Jewish immigrants. So Austria was then, thanks to Kreisky, the only country that allowed Soviet Jews to go through its territory on the way to making Aliyah to Israel. A lot of countries said good things. He was the only one who allowed that. And because of that, he got a lot of criticism by the Arab world. So the terrorism the terror attack that took place there forced Golda to come there, and after Kreisky gave in to the terrorist demands to close the immigration camp, immediately after, he opened a new camp. But that didn't change the matter that people said to him that he's giving in to terrorism and many more things. And their interaction was always very, very much connected to emotions between Golda and him together, but you could see that he really cared, and he wanted to allow Jews to do whatever they decide to do. So these these things come and go all throughout his career. Okay, so how did our guest today is Daniel Eichstein. He's written a book called Kreisky, Israel, and Jewish Identity. So in that era, like you said, Austria was like the known anti-Semitic European state. How did a Jew get elected? Did he hide his Jewishness that people didn't know about? Like I didn't, I never knew he was Jewish. So, but I'm, I was living in New York City. So, but um, generally, the the Europeans know who's Jewish. So, how did he, how did how did he get elected? It's a great question, but he was definitely known as Jewish. So he never denied his Jewishness. He he called himself a acculturated Jew. A Jew, some called it assimilated Jew, but he was an acculturated Jew coming from a background of the Habsburg Austrian Empire, his family many generations there. So for him, he was a true Austrian, a real Austrian general socialist, as you mentioned before. His, his Jewishness was a personal matter of religion and not part of a nation, as he called it. And therefore, he was elected in Austria, again, a very anti-Semitic Austria, A, because he was a very strong politician, B, he had a lot of global aspirations. He really brought Austria to the middle of central international attention. 
and his socialist ideas really promoted many economic innovation and steps that brought a lot of people to vote for him. And also, he was also, besides being a true intellectual a man, he was a man of people and a populist. So he could also go to very anti-Semitic areas, people knowing he's Jewish, but still vote for him because he was, as I mentioned before, he was sometimes advocating Nazis. He was willing to forgive the Austrian people. So he said, of course, the Nazis, the big ones, did whatever they did. But he also referred to the small Nazis and said, what was, was. 30 years ago, we need to leave it there, and we need to go and build our new Austria together. So he used their ter that terminology. But definitely it was known because his candidate in one of the elections from the Austrian People Party used the slogan when he wanted people to vote for him, he wrote, used Ein echter Österreicher in German, which means a real Austrian, which implies that Kreisky is not a real Austrian, and not because of his eyes, but because of his Jewish background. So it was present, but he still overcome that, overcame that by his political skills, people skills, and ideology. Okay, let's do a little conjecture then. Would you say that President Zelensky, Ukraine's in this kind of like the same position? Ukraine is not known for being philo-Semites, and here they have elected somebody who is known to be Jewish? It's a good question. I've been asked that a couple of times, and I think it's a, co it's a complicated comparison, but th there is a comparison there that there's, again, a Jewish leader, a head of state in a country that uh, we can speak about its history, its, cu its current relations to the Jewish community in general, but also Zelensky does not hide his Jewishness, but also doesn't emphasize it as part of his policies. He would tell you always he's first a Ukraine, like Kreisky would say, a Ukrainian, like Kreisky would say he's first an Austrian. And his Jewish issue is part of his personal belief. Although when he did come and speak to the Knesset in Israel, he did, Zelensky, he did use his Jewish sentiments in order to speak to the hearts of the Israelis. So I think there are similarities, there are differences, but, but again, being elected as a Jewish leader in these countries always has, you have to build your own Jewish identity. How do you cope and navigate that between being a citizen of the country, between the leader of that country and your Jewish identity, whether it's a collective or personal identity? Very interesting, fascinating. What would you like people, what would be the takeaway? You know, the, the, when, you read, when I read a book, I want to know what, how is this book going to make me a better person? What can I learn from Bruno Kreisky that I can take now and, and maybe apply to something in my life, Daniel Arshine? I think what we can learn is to see the different surfaces of the human being, the politicians, the leaders, what is reported, what is out there, what is reality, what's in the, in deep in the heart, what is in the ratio, what is in the emotions. And sometimes they work together, sometimes they don't. Some things we can explain, some things we can never explain. But the more you dwell into things and the more deep you get into them by seeing behind the scenes, not only relying on one or two sources, but seeing what comes from the archives from perspectives of people who sat in the same meeting, seeing how one reports A and one reports B, how the press reports C and how the different press reports D. And by that, we can navigate also the world that we are living in, which is full of fake news and, and things. We need to remember the different perspectives to find the middle way, which is usually the right way. Okay. If you were to ask the average Austrian now, this is a, something totally complete conjecture, but since you did so much research on it, 
about what they thought about Bruno Kresge, would anything Jewish come up? That's a very, very interesting point. And I think if you'd be asking today the Austrians, so those who remember him would say that he is still the most important post-World War II leader that Austria ever had. I think that's pretty much a consensus, also among those who disliked his policies, and many did. And I think that his Jewish heritage does not come up. And as you mentioned yourself, that you are not sure of that, I'm sure many Austrians themselves didn't know of it then, but I'm sure today even more don't know of his Jewish background. And that's why it was very important for me to write this book, because his, there are many books about Kreisky, very few dealing with his Jewish-Israel relations. And the only one that deals solely about that is, is my book. So there are others. There was one other that was a few, about 20 years ago published, but this is from the books that were published about this topic. This is really the most that it deals directly with his Jewish identity and his Israel relations. Okay. Now, this is, this is a, a cute question, I will admit. But so books usually go see. This, as you said, was presented as a thesis, so therefore it was uh, under peer review. And it went, you have your doctorate, so obviously it went through. But... As far as critics go, I'm assuming since you wrote the book, your mother read the book. What criticism did your mother have of your book? Oh, my mother never criticized it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but of course, you always... Daniel, you could have done this, you should have said yeah. this. It's like, you know, okay, we know how, it goes. We know how Jewish mothers are. Of course, of course. But uh, look, my father is also a professor of history, so he deals with the cultural, European cultural history. So he he knew a little bit about Kreisky, but he found it very interesting for him seeing another example of things that he researched before, maybe from 50 years before his period or 100 years before. But I think the the criticism that I that I got and and was in the beginning of it is how do you navigate the the people's approaches about the person and how do you take away the subjective from the objective so i interviewed certain people and certain people in the book had a very very strong emotions towards the person and i as, as someone writing this book need to take out these emotions and try and see where it's fact and where it's thoughts about what or and again from the years that passed what is wishful thinking or critical thinking that doesn't have the space. And I think in that criticism, when I got in the beginning, I really, really tried to take away uh, and the things that are, that are on the side and focus on, on the important matters and really try and make it as crystal clear as possible. And I think I managed to do that. I'm, you read the book. You will be able to criticize it better than me. But I think that's what I try to do, keep it objective and that everyone will decide what he thinks about the person. Okay. One last question, because your time is very short today, but you are an Israeli diplomat, and I know as a diplomat, you must be careful with what you say. Was there any type of concern of materials being put out that the, you know, the foreign ministry would have been concerned with or that you had to worry about censors, these type of things in writing this book? So most of the things I already wrote before I started working as a diplomat, and then I gathered them and wrote the book itself. I published it when I was already a diplomat. That's correct. But I'm dealing with a topic that is a historical topic that all the documents have been released already, even though they were censored before, but the time passed, so they were all published. There's nothing that is that couldn't be reached by any person, so I didn't use anything 
from a, from a source that is only available for me as a diplomat. And no, I did not censor anything, but I think it's an important topic that is relevant also for today for many people. A lot of the conversations about identity are relevant definitely today more than ever. And no, I didn't need to censor anything, but I don't think there's anything that is, that is sensitive in those matters of Israeli relations today. Okay, do you think, we're really going to stop up with this, do you think world leaders today that are Jewish should present their Judaism, somebody say like a Charles Schumer or a, uh, somebody in, in other, I don't know who other Jewish world leaders might be, Is it should they say, I'm, and stand up and say, yes, I'm American, I'm Jewish, or just it's, skirt the issue? Rabbi Finman, if I could answer that in a two-minute question, I would be a millionaire today, because I think that's the one million-dollar question that is asked every single conversation and every for, for years and years already, between every Jew who asks himself, "What am I first? What is my Jewish identity? Am I first a man of the world? Am I first an American? Am I an American Jew? Am I a Jewish American? Am I an Orthodox Jew? Am I a Reformed Jew? Am I an Israeli Jew?" And all of these identity questions are really very, very complex and complicated. I think it's a very individual question to ask each one of the leaders that they will decide for, for themselves how do they perceive what they are, who they are, personally, collectively, identity-wise, and community-wise. Spoken as a true diplomat. <laughs> our, guest <today. laughs> our guest today has been Daniel Ashheim. The book is Kreisky, Israel and Jewish Identity, published by... Uh, University of New Orleans, available wherever you get your books from. And we want to thank you so much and wish you continued success in all of your endeavors, Daniel. Thank you very much. Highly appreciate it. Take care. Take care. We're going to take a quick Bye. commercial break, and we're going to be right back. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's a symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Yeah, Herschel Finman, we're here. We're going to giving two thumbs up for Daniel Ashheim's Kreisky. That's K-R-E-I-S-K-Y. Kreisky, Israel, and Jewish identity. You get it where, like I said, I'm not going to tell you where to go, go to buy a book. I think you know how. If you're listening to this podcast, then you know where to buy a book. And it's available, of course, on Kindle and, you know, books on, you know, audiobook, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of audio, up for your listening pleasure next. This is Benny Friedman and Shlomi Gertner, Our Children, Our Mission. Jewish pride rooted deep inside 
and we'll be there to guide them to a future bright and clear. Our children are our nation, we'll do anything for them. Our children are our mission, our survival and our strength. Our children are the nation, and the nation will endure. For the chain remains unbroken when the children are the core. Our children are our spirit, if we could only see. Our children see no limit to their possibility. them diving as they sway just hear them speak and what they say and you might compare to the world out there and your heart will fill with wonder at our children of today the rhythm changes every day each child running his own ways through the joy and tears we will persevere with our children it's kishmak to be a year our children are our nation we'll do anything for them our children are our mission our survival and our strength our children are the nation and the nation will endure for the chain remains unbroken when the children are the core our children are our spirit we could only see our children see no limit to their possibility our children Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We've got only upbeat music today. Nothing somber, nothing melancholy, because, you know, life's too short. Let's keep it happy. So up next, this is Lippa Schmelzer, which I'm not sure if Lippa Schmelzer actually ever did a sad song. But this song is called Yidden in America, Jews Coming to, to America.
Schmelzer, Yidden in America, Jews in America. Uh, this is this is a really cool song. I happen to like this song. It's sort of like a hip-hop song, so it kind of like quasi-rap, which is not my thing per se. But this one's done really very nice. It's a pleasant song to listen to, and uh, there's some like really harsh stuff out there, which we don't play. So this is the first song that this person has ever cut. His name is Shlomo Gleiser. And it's called Choose Your Dream. You gotta chase your dreams, you know it's true. You gotta chase your life, cause it won't wait for you. I gotta chase my dreams, cause it won't wait for me. Chase my life to be all I can be. I won't be sticking around for too much longer. Lift my feet off the ground, fulfill my soul's hunger. Lift my feet, go grab any. Don't stop and think, just grab a drink. How long I've been in the same place, in the same space. I've got to make pace, I've got to race, I've got to chase. Chase, chase, chase. you got to chase and chase your dream. And even if it may seem like it can't be done, because you're the one who can be a champion. Find yourself with the land I am, find yourself the one to lead. 
I go to a hospital to get healthy. At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital, the same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Thinman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. This week is the portion of Mishpatim. The word Mishpatim means civil laws. And indeed, the portion, probably uh, four-fifths of the portion, is filled with various commandments which appear in modern jurisprudence. Things like, how do we handle this situation? You have uh, tort law, and you have uh, ownership laws and uh, like uh, fences, things going on. 
and uh, transactional property exchanges, all kinds of stuff like that. One of the things that is mentioned over here is, which is one of the more famous Talmudic discussions, and I'm saying it's famous Talmudic discussion is because lots of little kids learn it. It's like in the, one of the first subjects discussed when teaching a child Talmud is the subject of the goring ox. And the reason why this arcane subject about one ox goring another animal, which doesn't happen every day, and I've never even heard about such a case, and we've never reported on the news of anybody's ox goring anything else, is because of the back and forth, the give and take, which is the very basis of Talmudic logic, because there's a lot of what-ifs involved with the situation of goring oxen. So when it comes to goring oxen, there are different situations. Let's say it's, not, it's, it's recognized that it's not a normal thing for an ox to gore another animal. You, you know, oxen are very big. You know, bull, we have bullfighting. They're, they're maybe, I don't know if these animals are, are trained to charge at people or things. But generally, the only thing an ox really wants to do is eat. That's, that's basically what it is. You leave it alone, it's out in the pasture, and it's going to just stand there and just like munch on grass from today until tomorrow. But here it's recognized that if something riles up the ox, something like gets its, its goat, it's a, it's a <laughs> the ox got its goat. Okay, that's, we're not going to go there. And the ox did indeed charge at another thing, at a, another animal, and gored it. So this was turned as a, an accident. Because no one expected this animal to start charging other animals. So the owner of the ox pays half damages. It's not compensatory. It's a fine you didn't expect it to happen. It happened. You know, oxen, maybe you should keep in the back of your head that, yeah, it's possible for this thousand-pound creature with these projectiles on the top of its head, just like they don't projectile them, but you, know, you get the idea, could be used in, the, in such a dangerous situation. But so they tell demands that this person pays a fine. If the animal does it a second time, the same similar fine is applied, half damages. If it happens a third time, we're saying, wait a minute. Listen, buddy, the thing gored two times already. You, at this point, should have kept this thing under cl a close watch, lock and key, because this thing now has developed a propensity for goring. And so we make, the, uh, we make it pay full damages. Whatever this ox did, full damages. That's if the ox gores something. What happens if it's a cow, if, it's a, if you have a sheep, whatever. Sheep don't generally gore because they don't have horns. But you get the idea. If it could be anything, it could be your dog, you know, etc., a cat, a mouse, whatever your pet is, if it causes damages... So these are the laws that are applied. They use ox because oxen are normally the ones causing damage. So what's so so how how are we applying this to 
today. What does this have to do with us? We have something referred to as animal drives. And people have different animal drives. And for the most part, this is the way that people are born. They didn't choose to have this specific drive. Well, you don't, you didn't choose what you like and what you don't like. It's sort of like, it just is. The classic example I give with personally with myself is cilantro. There are nine members of my family, and if cilantro comes in the house, they're all jumping up and saying, yippee, this is a great day. We have cilantro. To me, cilantro on a good day tastes like soap. And in a bad day, spits, <laughs> it tastes like baby barf. I just can't do it. I try. I said, okay, I'm just going to let it go. And it's not that much in there. And I have no control over it. It's just, and there's a whole thing. They talk about it. There's a gene. And some people like it. And some people, either you like cilantro, you don't. You have, I have no control over it. Yes, I can eat something with cilantro in it. And I can say, yes, I'm going to eat this thing regardless of the fact that it has cilantro in it. And if it's just such a minute amount that it, I don't mind the soapy taste in it, okay. But if it's major, I, I'm, not, I'm not going there. I can't. It's just impossible. So we have drives. We have likes. We have dislikes. And some of us have animal drives like a mouse. Some people have animal drives like a sheep, which all sheep do is they just stand there. That's, you know, if you smack a sheep, it just goes, bah, doesn't, it doesn't even react. But then there are those that have, and everybody's got, you don't have just like one animal drive. Sometimes you have one like this. Sometimes you have an animal drive like that. So when it comes to that, that ferocious, passionate, animal drive that will stop at nothing to get whatever it wants to the point of goring so that we have to say you know you have this you may have this tendency even a person never did it before person has to understand they may have this tendency once it does happen so we, say, oh, we put the person on alert if it happens a second it's high alert so that at that point, there's no excuse that a person can't say, I never know, knew about it. I didn't think I was into that. And this is not, there, there is no excuse at that point. At that point, the person has to control their ox. What does it say about paying the full damage? It says it's kofr nafshite. It atones for the soul. So that means the owner now has done something wrong and paying in restitution for it atones for what the ox did. An indication for as what? That regardless of what we may have done till now and how much of an animal we may be till now, it could always be corrected. And once that person makes that correction, it's corrected. Move on. Become a better person learn and grow from what we have done. There's nothing that we do that happened for no reason, even if it's the wrong thing. We have the freedom of choice, but 
once we realize that it's the wrong thing and a person says, well, that was the wrong thing, they're never going to do it again. They've learned from their mistake. They've now become a greater person that they can have an influence on the world in what it is to do that type of a thing. So that's our deal here. The uh, Jewish Hour has been on air for, it's going to be soon, 29 years. It's amazing. Okay, I don't think there's been a Jewish program in the greater Detroit area that has been on in so long. I know there's some others were on for 18 years, 20 years. But we're talking 29 years. I was a little kid when we started this show. Had a voice like this? No, I did not. But the uh, only way in which the Jewish Hour has been able to survive for 29 years is because listeners like you have supported the Jewish Hour. When we started way back when, 29 years ago, the only way in which a person could show support was to write a check. That was it. And Or if they saw me like in the supermarket and recognized my voice, they can hand me some money, which that did happen too on occasion. Oh, you're Rabbi Finman. Here, let me write, <laughs> let me give you some money for the Jewish hour. So it's always been a hustle, and it's always been a hassle. And uh, we need you, the listeners of the Jewish hour, to help keep the Jewish hour in sustainable thing we'd like to keep on listen i have no plans of shutting the operation down not for the next 20 years not for the next 30 years we'll see what happens in 30 years i'll be 94 at the time i, I think i could still keep doing it luke you're going to be here in 30 years you think no luke is shaking his head no he's not going to he's i'll have to get a different you know how many board ops i've had since the last 30 years anyway so but uh luke you'll be a memory in 30 years Luke is shaking his head. <laughs> okay. But I'll be here. And you'll be here hopefully listening as well. So I need I need your help to do this. We all do. Everybody listening, all the people that are listening here and in, uh, now in podcast land, we all need your help. So to do that, go to RabbiFinman.com and make your donation. You can make it a yearly donation, a semi-yearly donation, a monthly donation. You can make it a daily donation. It doesn't matter. But and it doesn't matter how much. Just things. It, listen, it all adds up. Every little donation. I mean, January came in, little tiny drips and drabs. That's how we managed to pay for January. Baruch Hashem, February, where we were uh, almost halfway through the month. We're not... Nah, we're less than halfway through in our collections for the month. But listen, it's been going on for 30 years, and we need to do this. And by the way, when you're at your rabbifinman.com, which you may be listening to this podcast on rabbifinman.com, you'll notice that there are other podcasts, previous podcasts going back years on the on the website. There's also classes that I present, missives that I present. If you want to know about me, I also have a bio page over there which hasn't changed, <laughs> hasn't changed since 2009. I don't, maybe I should update it, but I think it's good the way it is. So, and we also have, if you're interested and you're at the, on the computer already, you might want to check out jewishferndale.com, which is a sister project under the same umbrella organization, the Jewish Hour, Jewish Ferndale. It's all, all one big happy family. And uh, we're all out there in Rabbi Finden's Facebook page, 
everything's on there as well. So you follow me, and uh, I don't mind being stalked. Just uh, just uh, send me nice mail, which you can send me nice mail if you go to RabbiFemin.com, and I always, always, always answer positively for uh, any any email. Could be a could be a harsh criticism, which on occasion I get those too, and always respond positively because. My mother always used to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. So that's one of those statements that's just like burned into my brain. Story. Interesting story. In 1962, Gershon Mendel Gorelick and his wife Basia were sent by the Rebbe to establish a Chabad Establish Chabad institutions in Milan, Italy. He was Russian and escaped in uh, the, the echelons of 1946. She was an American raised in Pittsburgh. And the two of them together were sent to Italy. So it's a big challenge right there, is they had to, <laughs> the first thing they had to do was learn Italian, which I know they're kids. I, I don't, I met. I knew Gershon Mendel very well. I never heard him speak Italian. He only spoke Yiddish and Russian. His English was terrible. And uh, I've never met, met Mrs. Gorelick. Her English is impeccable. Um, but her kids, their kids are polylinguists and speak, speaks many languages because of the nature of their upbringing. So in the early years, so there were no other Chabad outposts in England, in Italy. So it was up to them. So there was a meeting, there was a group, a very large group of ladies. I don't remember the name of the city. I think it was a very wealthy town, a resort town where a lot of tourists came. It was an hour train ride from Milan. And they asked Mrs. Gorelick to please come and speak for the crowd. So they uh, So she came when she talked, and she prepared two things to say. And she spoke for a total between the two things that she prepared to say. So she spoke, she spoke, and there was like a little break, and then they spoke, uh, she spoke again, and then she was she's done with her two talks, and she asked us any questions. And one of the ladies stood up and said, could you talk some more? And she drew a blank. It was like, oh, I prepared two things. She said, I, I know lots and lots of stuff. I can't think of anything. And so they, they did what we were doing. We'll come back to it. She, she was heartbroken. And so she wrote a letter. She was bothered her so much. She wrote a letter to the Rebbe. And said that she was maybe maybe she's not the right candidate. Maybe this is not what her calling. There's so many. She says she was in high school with so many so many girls who are now women who are much smarter than her, who could just like you know, on, the, on the, the the drop of a hat could rattle off lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff. The Rebbe answered her in English, knowing that her first language was the English, and said, "There are two types of crops." There's wheat and grain, and then you have fruit. It says wheat's really quick. You plant wheat, you put one wheat kernel in the ground, 
And a couple months later, you're pulling out a thousand wheat kernels from the ground. Then, but if you want to have, but wheat, wheat's, you know, cheap. And who thinks about wheat? Okay, you make bread out of it, but nobody really thinks about it. It's like no one said, ooh, what good-looking wheat that is. Then you have an orchard. An orchard, you plant it, and it takes time for it to grow before it even begins producing fruit. And then what people say is, wow, this is really a good-looking piece of fruit. I've heard this even said about apples. People say, this is a really good apple. You know, no one has ever said this is a really good wheat berry. Mm -mm. So he said, what you're doing is the second way. You're planting and you want instantaneous, you want instant gratification. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. It's going to take time. And you'll see as the years progress, you'll see that it'll come to fruition. That's the root the word that the Rebbe used, fruition. And indeed, Italy has, I don't know, a dozen, 18 Chabad centers around it, every major city that's any type of a Jewish population. So just sometimes it just takes patience, and you can't rely on things happening immediately. That's going to wrap it up for today. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care. חלפו כבר די שנים, יש מקום לחשש שיתיישן הדבר. באור וחום העסקה שוץ ילך ויחסר, חס ושלום. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.